a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. If you prefer to uh, grovel in groupthink, yeah, you're probably not going to be too comfortable as this uh, program plays out. However, if you prefer to revel in wrongthink, my friend, you are in the right place. I'm joined by Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, great to catch up with you once again. How are things? Oh, well, good. I, you know, I'm trying to take a break from the TV here so as to know and be programmed uh, what next thing to be afraid of. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I admit I fell prey to uh, the slap heard around the world and had to say a few things yeah. about it yesterday. And I, I feel bad for that just because it just shows how quickly our attention can be shifted from one thing to the next. You and I were talking as we were getting ready to go on the air here. Um, isn't it astonishing? How, how manipulable we have become with uh, with the latest yeah. outrage of the day. And and yet it makes me wonder, what are we missing? What, what are we being distracted from? Well, part of it, I think, is the ubiquity of media. Now, you and I, because we're geezers, can remember when there were three channels. There were NBC, CBS, and ABC. And maybe, depending on where you were, there was some UHF local programming channel. And you remember when we were little kids and we'd get up early on a Saturday morning and turn the TV on and there was nothing but white white noise. Oh, and yeah. then they would play the, the American anthem and then the program would start. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's incredible to think that that's how things were once. And it was healthy because you weren't drowned and marinated in this constant 24-7 news cycling of fear and terror porn that people have become habituated to. You know, Dr. Malone talked about this when he was on Rogan's show about how this is how they instill this mass psychosis in people who are just constantly being prodded and needled to be terrified of, you know, this thing today, that thing tomorrow, and you're in a state of perpetual anxiety as a result of that. And people who are in that state are very easy to direct and manipulate. And that's, I think, ultimately what's at the bottom of all of this. No, I, I would agree. It's, it's very clear for anyone who's paying attention that uh, the war – the global war has begun, and I don't mean just on a typical battlefield with tanks and troops and invasions and airplanes and such. I mean the war for your mind, and, and it's, it's, a, it's taking place at every conceivable level of existence. Yeah, TV particularly, TV and the Internet have become so uh, pervasively toxic that the healthiest thing that you can do is to turn all of this stuff off. And if you do that after a couple of days, uh, you'll realize that you know, life is actually pretty good and things are basically okay. And it, it is not a reflection of reality, what you're seeing in the TV. And you become more and more conscious of the, 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 the attempt to manipulate you by terrorizing you constantly. Now, you mentioned something also before we went on the air, and I have to admit, I have only heard the faintest rumblings, but is it true there is now a stealth variant of uh, COVID out there for which we should tremble in our shoes? <laughs> So they say, yeah, I think they call it the B2A stealth variant. Oh, and, you know, like all of these other variants, you have to watch TV to be aware of it. <laughs> uh, because, yeah, apparently it, it is even less of a threat than the Moronicon, which was even less of a threat than the original Rona, which didn't kill, what, 99.8 something of the healthy population. Yeah, I actually saw a chart yesterday that someone had posted, and it was showing nation by nation. This is the percentage of people who have survived the coronavirus. 
And every mm-hmm. one of them was 99 point something percent. But you would never know that from the way that uh, the traditional media has approached this. We're supposed to still be in fear. No, and one of the things that's astonishing to me, and you know, flip things around and point out the dissonance of our time, if you were to go back to around this time two years ago, um, when people were bug-eyed in fear about the Rona, uh, and of course they were they were in that bug-eyed fearful state because of the TV and the internet telling them to be afraid. Well, here we are now, and you know you've got legitimate reasons to be afraid of something. The vaccines, uh, you know, it, uh, almost a day doesn't go by. I, I tweeted too. You may have seen them. Uh, latest elite level athletes who suffered uh, major heart problems in the course of um, a game or training. And this sort of thing is happening all the time. And you think people would begin to be alarmed about this. You know, this is an unprecedented thing. And it's a thing that seems to correlate directly with these vaccines. Now, I'm not saying that it's certain that the vaccines have caused these problems, but there is definitely reason to worry that it may have and it ought to be looked into. But nobody seems, you know, outside of our circle of kooks, to be interested in pursuing this. I know one of the accounts that I follow on Twitter is the Consent Factory. And uh, one of the things that they tweeted over the weekend was, if you enjoyed the winter of severe illness and death, you're going to love the spring and summer of dying suddenly of undisclosed causes that have absolutely sure. nothing whatsoever to do with the vaccines. <laughs> nothing at all. Yeah, and they're trying to normalize it. There are even uh, PR and marketing campaigns now. Have you seen these? where they attempt to imply that it's normal for kids, for children, for middle schoolers to develop heart problems. Yeah, it's I'll tell you this, and, and I'm sure this is no surprise to anybody who has successfully resisted the jab to this point. But the more information that comes out, the more vindicated I think those of us who resisted are beginning to feel about yeah. saying no. Absolutely. And you know that, of course, can cut two ways. Uh, the good way is that the people who were pressured and coerced into submitting to the jab by being threatened with loss of employment uh, or with the prospect of being ghettoized and not allowed to function in society any longer, uh, they could look at this and think, you know, God, I really got taken advantage of here. I was used by malicious people and malevolent people. And that righteous anger, I think, could really help to fuel a return not only to sanity, but perhaps to liberty. The thing that worries me is that it could actually double down in the other way and that the people who are still walking around with the face diaper on will uh, attribute everything that's going wrong, not to the pharmaceutical companies, not to the political leadership that has pushed all of this stuff, um, but upon us because we haven't joined their cult and we do not share their faith and uh, their hysteria and their fear will only amp up and be amped up by these same desperados who created this awful situation in the first place. Yeah, that's a that's a spooky concept. Now, I don't know if you have heard this. If you have, I'd like to get your reaction. I have heard mm-hmm. that Anthony Fauci is actually floating the possibility that, well, there may be even stricter lockdowns or restrictions on the way. I don't think that's, sure. yeah, I, I, I don't think the public's going to go for that. What do you think? It'll be interesting. I don't think as many of the public will go for it this time. I do think that there is a cohort. Um, Malone talked about this and broke it down that uh, I think he said that something like 30% of the general public is irredeemably, hopelessly hypnotized. And no matter what you say to these people, uh, they are, are not going to uh, respond to facts, to reason, to logic. They are, they are like the people in Jim Jones' cult who willingly drank the Kool-Aid, the Heaven's Gate people who donned the Nike shoes and the pajamas and you know shedded their containers. Those people, you have to write them off, unfortunately. 
And then there are the 40% that are the persuadable middle, you know, who will probably go whichever way the wind blows, depending. And that will depend on the other 30%. That's people like you and I who have steadfastly refused to buy into this nonsense from the get-go. And it's incumbent upon us to uh, hold out uh, the, the candlelight, if you will, to get the other 40% to come along to our side, because then we have 70%, and that is what's going to determine whether this thing goes really horribly wrong or it gets corrected. No, I'm with you. And and I know this may run counter to some people's inclinations, because, look, I, I am a little bit resentful. Okay, I'm a lot resentful of being treated like an enemy for simply standing up for, you know, personal autonomy sure. and informed consent. But I understand people's eyes are coming open. People are starting to realize they were duped. And I'm trying to do my part to to welcome them back to reality without being too vindictive about, uh, you know, you dirty so-and-so. Why didn't you see this sooner? Yeah. You know, people, all of us have had to learn lessons the hard way in life. I think that that's probably a universally true statement. We have uh, made mistakes. And the key is to acknowledge that you made a mistake and to learn from it and to not repeat the mistake. And we shouldn't be too angry with people who made a mistake, provided that they're willing to acknowledge a mistake was made and provided they're willing to not make the same mistake again, particularly when their mistake imposes costs on us. I think that's the critical factor here. And you know, if anything, if anything comes out of this that's good, it will be a, a resurrection of the concept of due diligence, meaning, you know, you look into things for yourself. You ask questions, you know, before you come up with what your point of view is on it, rather than just sitting there like a, a seal and waiting for somebody to throw you a sardine and clap, you know, do whatever the, the trainer tells you to do. No, I, I agree. And, and the one concern I do have is that the people who actually pushed this on us, the, the political class, the medical establishment and so forth, that they're going to succeed in getting a majority of people to forget that it happened. I want them held accountable. And, and if that sounds vindictive, so be it. But they need to be held no, accountable so they can't do that's it again. Just. That's just. I, I think it's very, very important that we define it in those terms. It's just. It's not about vengeance. It's not about vindictiveness. It's about what's right. These people are criminal. They acted and behaved in a criminal manner towards people of this country. They have injured people. They have devastated millions of people's lives. They have done uncalculable harm to a generation of children, too. And they need to be held to account. Here, here. Let's continue this conversation the other side of our break. We are talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. I'll have a link in the show notes so you can go right to his website. Stay with us. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out to my sponsors, GovernYourCrypto.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, MonticelloCollege.org, sewingandquiltingcenter.com at hslammo.com. I have Eric Peters with me as we do each week. We get together and talk about things that matter. And Eric, uh, automotive things matter to me. That's that's a big part of my autonomy and my freedom as an individual. And You've had some pretty interesting articles here of late. Um, I'm mourning the, the impending demise of the V8 engine, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this. Uh, no. Uh, in fact, I think there are a lot of people who are mourning it particularly because it is uh, an artificially induced premature death. Uh, and in particular, with regard to the wonderful Hemi V8s uh, that are 
uh, the centerpiece of models like the Dodge Challenger and Charger and also Ram trucks. And what's happening is the government, particularly the Biden government, has issued a variety of regulations pertaining to fuel economy and emissions that are making it essentially impossible to continue to build engines like that, at least on a mass market kind of scale. Uh, Dodge has held the line uh, really remarkably and laudably, in my opinion, on all of this stuff. I mean, after all, they're continuing to sell cars like that at a price point that people like you and I can afford. Um, but even they have had to step back a little bit. Uh, but the good news is that they haven't given up completely. They have a new engine uh, on deck that is going to be the replacement for the V8. It's an inline six-cylinder engine. It's about half the size. It's only three liters, uh, but it has twin turbos, and it makes as much or more power as the Hemi. Now, that's the good news. The bad news is it is a twin turbo engine. It's going to cost more. Uh, the turbos uh, will impose more stress internally on that engine, and we're going to have to wait and see whether this engine will prove to be as long-haul reliable as these great old V8s have been over the past several decades. So how does this V6 compare to, say, the uh, uh, turbocharged, or is it a supercharged uh, V6 that Ford has used in some of its uh, police cars, the, the Ford uh, you know, high-output oh. Tauruses? Well, it's a fundamentally different design. It is an inline engine, you know, so the, the cylinders ah. are lined up in a row, kind of like the old Jaguar uh, engines and such. And the upside to that is that the inline six is an inherently balanced engine. So it's a lighter engine. It doesn't need internal balancers or external balancers to, to stave off the vibrations. And it tends to be a very free revving engine. So all of that is really good. Uh, and the high specific output, you know, I think they're, they're saying that the, the base non-high output version of this engine will make something like 400 horsepower. The current Hemi makes about 375. So that's really good. But it's a smaller engine, and that means that inside the engine, you've got smaller surfaces, like the bearing surfaces, for example, and they're going to have to withstand the stress of 20-plus pounds of turbocharged boost. They're going to be using this engine in trucks. Now, in cars, might not be such a bad thing, but I'm a little bit leery about putting an engine like that in a truck where the truck is going to have to be pulling heavy loads and working hard, and the effect that that is going to have on this thing over, say, you know, 10, 12 years of everyday driving. Well, you know, I used to own a Volkswagen Tiguan, which had a little turbocharged four-cylinder, and I have to admit, mm -hmm. that was a pretty responsive little engine. I mean, it, yeah. it could get moving in a hurry, but you described such engines as high-strung, which I think is a perfect and very apt description. They, they do perform well, but they come at the cost of being more complicated, and, and when something does go wrong, you know, you're, you're looking at some pretty expensive repairs. Yeah, there's something else to consider, too, that the public is not made aware of. Uh, you know, they, they will tout, they meaning the car companies under the duress of, imposed by the government, the mileage improvement. Okay, so you're looking at three to five miles per gallon better, let's say, in the case of this engine, the inline six, relative to the V8, on the government fuel economy tests that serve as the basis for those city highway numbers that you see on the car window sticker. But out in the real world, in order to get the performance out of these little engines, what do you do? You have to push down on that gas pedal more to get the boost from the turbo building to produce the power of the bigger engine. And I can tell you, as somebody who test drives cars every week, and I've been doing it for a long time, that when you drop the hammer on these little turbo engines, they wind up using as much or more gas than the bigger engines without the turbo. Wow. Well, I mean, I feel the pain at the pump. But uh, but I also feel kind of a surge of American pride every time I turn the key on my uh, my V8 powered Tahoe, just because I feel like at some level sure. I, I'm asserting my freedom as an American and 
you know, I guess if I'm contributing to global climate change, my apologies, folks, but it sure feels good to be driving something with some horsepower under my foot. Yeah, well, that's another hystericized thing, very much like this whole Rona thing. Most people, if you ask them, uh, what percentage of the Earth's atmosphere is carbon dioxide? Most people have no clue or they'll give you some ridiculous answer like 25% or 30%. For the sake of the people listening, I will tell you it is significantly less than 1% of the Earth's atmosphere that constitutes carbon dioxide. And we're supposed to believe that a fraction of that fraction that's emitted, as they style it, by cars somehow is going to induce catastrophic climate change. And some of the peddlers of that, people like Bill Gates, for example, uh, Bill Gates is just building himself a nice new, something like 10,000 square foot bachelor pad now that his wife left him uh, on the beach, you know, mm. where supposedly the rising sea levels are going to inundate everything. It's a crock. It's a, I'm not suggesting that the climate doesn't change. Of course it does. It gets warmer. It gets cooler cyclically. The, the thing is, it's not catastrophic. You know, we've been hearing you and I our entire lives just about, about catastrophic impending global warming or global cooling. Then they came up with climate change to encompass both of those things, to encompass everything. It never happens, does it? No. Because it's not going to happen. You know, we may see a bit of warming. We may see some cooling. But the Earth is going to abide, whether we're driving electric cars or hemi-powered ram trucks. It's, it's just... It's, it's another attempt to terrify the population for the purpose of controlling the population, and that's all it's about. So let me pose a question to you. I saw this come up the other day online, and I thought, okay, this is a fair question. If, uh, if this push to get us all into electric cars as quickly as possible were to succeed, how do we pay for the highways and the maintenance of those highways when a lot of that is funded through gas taxes? Well, I've got the easy answer for you, and they've already got this in work. They're going to tax you by the mile rather than tax you at the point. And it's not just going to be electric cars either. Uh, they're going to use odometer readings of cars generally to impose whatever that tax is going to be. And, of course, it's also very probable that there's going to be an, an additional utility tax because, after all, electric cars burn electricity, don't they? And sure. it's a really convenient way to raise revenue by saying, well, you got to pay your fair share. You have an electric car. Uh, you're hooked up to grid power. Uh, we're going to hit you with whatever the tax is going to be. Uh, so, again, it's another bogey. These people who think, well, I'm going to save money by buying myself a $40,000 electric car because I won't have to spend any money on gas. Wait till they find out what they're going to have to pay on elect- for electricity and for mileage. Oh, man, they got us coming and going. Let's let's, really let's shift gears here for a moment. You just posted an article, uh, The Lesson of the Caddy Hacked. We've got about a minute and a half <laughs> yeah. here, but give us the gist of, of, uh, of weight versus performance and, and this incredible article from Hot Rod Magazine. Yeah, if it's from the good old days, uh, back when uh, you know writing about cars was fun, the, the editors of the mag took a 1970 Cadillac, and they wanted to see what the effect would be of reducing its weight by taking panels off the car. This thing weighed close to 5,000 pounds when it rolled off the assembly line. They knocked more than 2,000 pounds off of it, and they got it to go through the quarter mile in about 13.5 seconds versus about 18 seconds when it was, uh, when it was a brand-new car. And the point being that weight has a tremendous effect not only on performance but on efficiency. And if you fast forward to our day today, new cars are incredibly heavy. A little car, like an electric car, like the Tesla 3, which is about the same size as a Honda Civic sedan. It's a small car. weighs 4,000 pounds. Wow. My 76 Trans Am, which is a V8 muscle car and has uh, a bolt-on frame in the front and it has a gigantic half-iron V8, only weighs 3,800 pounds. So can you imagine how efficient an electric car could be if it weighed a thousand or fifteen hundred pounds less than it does. 
The reason these cars are so heavy is because they have to abide by all of these federal regulations pertaining to safety, which has nothing to do with whether a vehicle is more likely to crash. All it has to do with is if you crash, the vehicle may be safer than it might otherwise be. But people should have the choice, in my opinion, to decide for themselves whether they want a car that's efficient and economical every day uh, and balance that against what it might what might happen to them if they drive the car into a tree at some point. Imagine that if we actually had a choice. Imagine that. Eric, <laughs> imagine great, we had a choice. Great to talk with you as always. I'll have a link to your website and I look forward to our conversation next week. Same thing, Brian. I appreciate it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, I got to I got to take a deep breath. Before I uh, before I move forward here, because I'm, I'm going to go into some territory today that's going to make a few people uncomfortable. Probably not you, but, you know, for those who will be uncomfortable, I want to at least give them, you know, some advance warning. And, you know, it's it's a tough it's a tough challenge every single day not to not to be portraying gloom and doom and oh, this is so terrible. And yet at the same time, remain rooted in reality and recognize, look, the situation is not improving it's likely not going to improve until we have reached the climax of this fourth turning. And, and even then, how things are going to look when the clouds clear away and we uh, start the cycle anew still remains very much in doubt. I think the, the, what's at stake and, and the scale of the change that's going on around us is, is pretty tough for people to comprehend. I know it's tough for me, so let me just speak for myself. It's hard to get my mind around. But it's pretty clear that uh, a lot of people, maybe a solid majority of people, are going to go along with whatever the ruling class tells them to do. And they won't uh, be disturbed, you know, to, to think independently about these kind of things because acceptance or the appearance of being, you know, safe within the herd is going to drive them more so than the need to really understand and, and, and more importantly than just, you know, understanding what's going on to live up to whatever truth they possess. Does that make sense? I really hope it does. So I just want to make clear that what I'm sharing here is is not for everybody. And some people are going to go, Whew, this is too much. I, I just can't handle it. I'm going to turn it off because it scares me. And I don't blame them. And I don't look at them as somehow being inferior or, you know, evil or stupid or they just, you, you can't handle the truth. Bah, no truth handler you. No. I think it really comes down to where your priorities are. And for some people, that, uh, that degree of understanding is simply not a priority. Even if you show them right to their faces, look, here's what's going on. They'll have some grasping straw, you know, oh, no, there's, a, there's a reason I can still believe in, in what the ruling class is telling me. I was thinking about this because I spent a little bit of time yesterday commenting on and, you know, laughing about uh, some of the Will Smith versus Chris Rock things that came out. And then I realized, OK, I'm giving into a distraction or at least I'm <clears throat> I'm playing along with the next big distraction. And I hate to feel like, you know, I'm a cat and the media is holding the laser pointer. But there I was chasing that dot. I kind of like how, how Tom Woods puts it. 
He says, uh, as his friend Jeff Lescovar notes, it's impossible to explain the behavior of a great many people apart from a deeply held desire just to fit in, to be part of the crowd, to, to follow whatever powerful elites tell them. But whatever the latest cause is, they'll be there with whatever colored flag or slogan at the ready. In fact, Tom Wood says, as it happens, most elites favor state power. Huh, go figure. So virtually every cause that the non-elites who crave acceptance will find themselves promoting are going to end up expanding that power. So where does that leave the rest of us? Well, they view you, a dissident, in the way uh, in tribal days an outcast from the tribe would have been viewed. Contemptible, barely human, indeed a threat. And Tom Woods asks, what good would have debating done you in those days? He says, I don't know what the percentages are. But a chunk of us are independent thinkers and instinctively question the party line. Now, another chunk can't imagine themselves not being part of the tribe, and they will do whatever they're told. The question mark, though, is how big is the third group? That third group is the people who may outwardly conform but are inwardly questioning. So, to the extent that we touch on some of these topics or debate some of these topics and get the message out, it's to reach and to comfort these people to let them know that the doubts in their heads are, in fact, well-founded. They're not crazy to be questioning. After all, they're watching events unfold. They may be concerned that the price of being an open dissident, well, that's, that's just too high. They don't want to risk being ostracized or deplatformed or fired from their job or just called names, for that matter. But as Tom Woods puts it, that's why you and I need to keep at it. This third group needs to hear from us. They need to know that knowing and telling the truth has rewards of its own. And and I like this last part he adds. And they need to know that we'll take care of each other. So I guess what I'm trying to get, this is the long way to get there, but the message that I have is when I share the stuff that I share on this program, the good news as well as the bad news, but especially when I when I share the news that can, can be tough to comprehend or to contemplate, It's not out of a sense of, well, look what I know that you don't, or it's not a sense of, here, have some more misery, have some guilt, have some fear. I'm sharing this as a concerned friend and someone who has has gone through this process of of being red-pilled and and waking up and realizing, oh my gosh, (laughs) these people really are doing everything they can to, to hold my mind hostage, to hold your mind hostage. So the content that you'll find on this program is is intended to act as a hostage rescue team, so to speak, to help you regain the freedom, starting with your own mind and eventually, hopefully, resulting in, in your whole freedom, mind, body, soul. To that end, I put together show notes every day. I've got a lot of great resources to draw from, and, and, and thank goodness I have wonderful sponsors, and I have uh, patrons who support me. I, I have listeners who, who graciously donate, you know, five or ten bucks a month just to help keep me on the air. And this is out of the goodness of their own heart, okay? I, they, find, they find some value in what I'm doing. I'm grateful for that because I really believe God gave me, you know, a gift to, to speak to and to, to reach people at a certain level, and I intend to use that gift as wisely as I can, which is to speak the truth, especially during a time where getting, getting the truth out there is, is getting harder and harder. Now, the fact that you're a part of this audience, or at least you're giving it a chance and listening today, 
That's humbling to me. I can't tell you how grateful I am. I, I have no idea how many people this message is reaching. I, I just sincerely hope that the ones that, uh, that I am reaching, including you, are finding something that strengthens your stance in being able to stand on your own feet, to think for yourself, to be free, clear, and independent in how you view the world, which means you're free to disagree with me. I'm not going to take any offense whatsoever. I'm not going to insist that, well, you have to toe this line or you're not good enough to be a wrong thinker. The fact that you're willing to question the dominant narratives, that puts you right in the company of wrong thinkers. And you know what? Wrong thinkers aren't known as being wrong thinkers because they're all chanting in unison and marching in lockstep. They're doing it because they realize some things matter more than personal comfort, And truth is one of those things. So, with that in mind, I want to recommend uh, an article here from Jordan Schachtel. This is from his dossier substack. Bidenomics, a winter of blaming the noncompliant becomes a spring of blaming Putin. Anything to not take responsibility for government-imposed catastrophes. Now, tell me if this rings true. Jordan Schachtel says, unlike Midas, everything the Biden administration touches turns into excrement. Whether it's deliberate or not, The end result is becoming crystal clear. Every grand plan of action purported to help Americans harms Americans. Every attempt to punish the overseas bad guy, in this case, President Russian President Vladimir Putin, ends up harming Americans worse. Now, if you remember, 2022 began with a projected winter of severe illness and death for the unvaccinated. And of course, this never really panned out as working class people who took care of their health largely remained fine because COVID is no more deadly than seasonal influenza. However, the Biden administration insisted they know what's best for our collective health. And the government's infamous OSHA mandate, which has since gone bust, led to misery for so many American families, forcing countless individuals to undergo another round of potentially dangerous experimental mRNA therapy in order to feed their families. And when the measures failed, who got blamed, right? It was the non-compliant. Well, the COVID mania narrative, which was becoming immensely unpopular with a growing contingent of Americans, has been put on pause. Perhaps you've noticed Russia's invasion of Ukraine created the perfect boogeyman for the for the Biden administration, which has long blamed Russia for everything under the sun. So get ready for Putin's gas prices or his gas price hikes, Putin's inflation, Putin's food shortages. Unlike the adoption of the COVID narrative, however, Americans are not exactly convinced that Putin is the one responsible for our economic issues. And when we get back on the other side of the break, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, why this is the case. Now, this is not so much playing the blame game as just recognizing that there's an immense amount of deception underway right now. I've never seen anything like it in my life, and and I'm not bragging, I'm not trying to flex when I tell you this, but I've actually been paying pretty close attention for the last 30 years. It's mind-boggling. I mean, the president yesterday just flat-out lied when confronted by a reporter about three terrible public gaffes that he made on the record in the last couple of days. Says, none of that happened. He's like a wild-eyed vegetable. And this guy's got his finger on the nuclear trigger. So, yeah, we have reason to be concerned. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to point you toward lifesavingfood.com. This is one of my sponsors. Kendall Whiting is the owner and is a wonderful guy. I think he is there to help people get prepared, to find peace of mind in uncertain times. And that's why I would, I would encourage you to please consider clicking on the link, which I provide in my sponsor links in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Take the time to just get acquainted with what they have, whether you're looking for emergency survival food or water filtration or survival items, sprouting seeds, air purification. They have all of these things in one place, lots to choose from, something for every budget. The important thing is don't put it off. Don't don't wait until there are, you know, serious breakdowns and shortages to where some things are just no longer available at any price. The time to act is now. Actually, the time to act is, you know, several uh, several years ago or several months ago, but no better time than to, to get started right now if you haven't been started. And if you have got started on, on your food storage program, keep building. Keep building. There are people around you who can very likely use your help. Be the person that they can count on. All right, going back to uh, Jordan Schachtel's Bidenomics, a winter of blaming the noncompliant becomes the spring of blaming Putin. And he shares a couple of tweets here. This is from Byron York. From an NBC poll, who do you blame for inflation? The results will encourage Republicans to keep pounding, will encourage focus on corporate greed, maybe let the Putin price hike thing fade away. It's interesting. You know, there's uh, there's uh, some who blame Biden and his policy. Some blame the COVID-19 pandemic. Some say it's corporations increasing prices. And there are those who's, who will jump on board. Well, it was because Putin invaded Ukraine, but... Remember, our troubles with uh, with soaring energy prices and the possibility of food shortages, largely due to our government's destructive economic and energy policies, started long before Biden invaded Ukraine. And they've most recently been accelerated by the Biden administration's already failing sanctions regime against Russia. Now, Jordan Schachtel says the global sanctions regime has utterly failed due to a variety of factors, and that includes the reality that Russia still has plenty of trading partners to choose from. This includes the European sanctions partners who have no other option than to buy Russian energy resources. Euro powers decided under the incentivized shield of NATO or American military protection to adopt a green import-only strategy in order to accommodate the eco-fanatics within their ranks. American policymakers in the Biden administration seek to replicate these destructive policies as part of their Build Back Better agenda to transition away from reliable energy and consolidate even more power into central authority. Now, these sanctions, Jordan Schachtel writes, were established with the de facto objective to bankrupt the Russian economy and depose Vladimir Putin. Well, a month later, the Russian population continues to consolidate around Putin, and the ruble is rebounding to its pre-invasion stature. By the way, he's got some nice graphs and tweets that, that show these graphs that illustrate this. This is not just something he's plucked out of thin air. Jordan Schachtel says the Biden administration and U.S. legislators can avoid a spring of economic recession and soaring energy prices by dropping the sanctions regime and encouraging a peaceful settlement to the Russia-Ukraine spat. But instead, they're doing the opposite. Putin has become the fall guy for everything that's gone south with the the American economy. And with the midterm elections coming up, the Biden administration is leaning into it as much as they can. 
He says these forces are imposing tremendous economic harm upon the American citizen. Now, whether it's deliberate or not can remain an academic exercise, but the reality of their policies couldn't be any more clear. Now, if that just sounds like, well, is this just a blame game or what? Um, you know, <laughs> yes, on the part of the politicians, I think it certainly is. But if you look around you, does it not seem clear that that the ruling class here in America is doing everything it can to kick out from underneath us everything that has upheld our standard of living to this point? Let's uh, let's continue on. Are you brave enough to, to walk with me a little bit further? Okay, let's let's continue down this trail. James Howard Kunstler, in a piece published on LewRockwell.com earlier today. What is to be done? He says, money, money, money everywhere along the trail for the Biden family. The black hole of depravity known as the Hunter Biden laptop dilates ever wider as the rickety Joe Biden regime chugs towards its event horizon of disgrace and collapse, throwing off the jetsam of our nation's remnant honor in its toxic vapor trail. The memos and emails on the device could not be clearer. Joe Biden and his grifting family sold out their country. The mentally incompetent husk of a crooked old politician is owned by every foreign interest in his decaying orbit and owned as well by the foul and perfidious intel mafia lodged like a cancerous mass eating away at what used to be known as the American government. He says, face it. This false president, installed by malignant forces allied with his allied with his party of chaos, is a menace to our nation. The Russian cleanup of Ukraine has exposed the operational base of the Biden family's flagrant crimes. The laptop confirms Hunter's Rosemont Seneca Front Company invested in the chain of bioweapons labs set up by the CIA and Department of Defense and operated through their front company, Metabiota, with tendrils reaching to Wuhan, China, Virology Lab, the the one that was most likely the point of origin for SARS-CoV-2, a.k.a. COVID-19. Money, money, money everywhere along the trail for the Biden family. Fees for service from the crooked Ukrainian oligarch Mykola Zlochevsky, chairman of Burisma, the gas company that provided walking around money for Hunter's insatiable drug habit and degenerate sexual adventures. More millions from shady sources in Russia, and then billions more from the boardrooms of Chinese companies connected with the intel and military arms of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, if the American public had known of these entanglements, Joe Biden would certainly not have been the beneficiary of the engineered balloting irregularities that determined the 2020 election. But the public, still reeling from the mind effery of COVID-19, was left ignorant through the combined operations of the CIA's captured social networks, along with a tractable legacy news media. He says, of course, the FBI had Hunter's laptop in its possession in January of 2020. How is it possible that the device and all its incriminating contents were withheld as evidence in the momentous impeachment trial of Donald Trump, which, after all, was instigated by Mr. Trump's inquiring phone call about those very matters involving the Bidens and Mikola Zlochevsky? Answer, because the FBI was already rattled by the unraveling truth about its seditious role in the Russiagate folly and the agency was wholly invested in the removal of Mr. Trump before top agency officials found themselves in grand juries, federal crimes on top of federal crimes by federal officials. And James Howard Kunstler asked, how do we stand for that? And they continued to sit on and hide the laptop through the first 15 months of Joe Biden's astoundingly calamitous term in office 
to the dangerous point that America has arrived at today, the potential brink of a nuclear exchange with Russia, all a product of our decades-long interventions and machinations in sad sack Ukraine, a train wreck of foreign policy blunders that can only be explained as a product of the most extreme and ruinous organizational hubris seen since Germany's misadventure invading the Soviet Union in Operation Barbarossa in 1941. And now the suits in America's intel, state, and war offices are apparently thinking that the Joe Biden operation has got to be thrown overboard before it's too late to disassociate themselves from it and its slime trail of crime. All hinges on whether a percentage of the mesmerized American public, those buffaloed by the combined effects of woke hysteria and mass formation psychosis, might rouse from their induced trance and recognize the ominous shape that reality has assumed while their minds were hostage. Now, he says too many can see that everything now in American life is going south. Joe Biden has knocked the remaining props out from under the country's assumed standard of living. We're on track to go medieval in months, not years. No replacement parts for our machines. No money or money that's soon to be worthless. No food, no heat, no light, no getting from point A to point B. Soon, no hope. And if we're really lucky, the very land itself and the things we build upon it reduced to cinders and ash. Okay, this is the worst case scenario, obviously, but he says, one thing you must know, we are not entering the wishful robotic anti-utopia of social credit control, QR code management, and World Economic Forum Klaus Schwab transhumanism. We are veering rather off the rails into historic, epic political disorder. Something much more complexing than, or perplexing rather than the clear-cut crack-up of the 1860s. In this new pandemonium, He says the best of us will remember what has been the best about us. Liberty, the rule of law, freedom of speech and the press, the dignity of work, our sense of obligation to a common good, and the decorum of truth-telling. So James Howard Kunstler says, for now, strive to stay sane against all the inducements of the wicked. Now, I get it. That's, That's a heavy load to bear. But I don't think you would be listening or even considering these possibilities if you didn't feel that at some level you have a personal role to play in helping to bear the standard of freedom. And I'm encouraging you, bear it with pride. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is where we gather to exercise our abilities in wrong think on a daily basis. And it may sound terribly subversive, but it really is. This is just a survival mechanism for people who still believe in things like, well, I don't know, objective truth. Or in uh, some of the traditional standards and foundational principles and ideals. In other words, the principles and practices of liberty upon which this nation was founded. I appreciate you being part of my audience. I know that uh, not everybody is, is willing to even contemplate some of the, the things that I share on here. And that's okay. I'm not, uh, I'm not out to build the biggest audience ever. What I'm here to do is to, on a daily basis, 
speak truth and encouragement to those people who are part of that remnant that still values truth and values the ability to think clearly and independently for themselves. And I'm very happy to do that and feel like it's whatever risk may be involved, it's absolutely worth it. So thank you for being a part of this growing audience of wrong thinkers. I've got some great sponsors who make this show possible. They include GovernYourCrypto.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, also LifesavingFood.com, MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, and HSLAmmo.com. You'll find handy links in my show notes at TheBrianHydeShow.com, which will get you connected to each one of these sponsors. So I want to start with... Just a very quick observation from one of my favorite thinkers, and this guy has actually been on my radar screen for, I think, a little over 10 years now, Paul Rosenberg. His recent essay, which landed in my email inbox, and I would encourage you to subscribe to his freemansperspective.com newsletter, it's called At the Edge of the Abyss Again. I think you'll like what he has to say here. He says, here we stand at the edge of an abyss, gazing down at world war again. And almost no one grasps the reality of it. It's all images flying across screens and propagandists seizing emotions. Thinking worldwide has constricted to the application of binary labels, good guy or bad guy. And it's presently stuck right there. He says, we're now at the edge of our third world war in just over a century. And that ignores the near misses we've had with nuclear exchanges. Now, the first of those, World War I, was so close to us in time that he says, both of my grandfathers fought in it, and he says, I'm not that old. There are soldiers from World War II still alive. Now we stand at the edge again, elites raging against one another, while whole populations are thrown, or about to be thrown, into a grinder. Now, Paul Rosenberg says the propaganda has been so fast and so loud, almost no one realizes what World War signifies. It's all just screen stuff. The edge of the abyss is still outside the kill zone, after all. Now, in the late 1980s, a study on war was published by a large church organization. It was immediately ignored, declared to be flawed, and forgotten. But he says, I think of that study at times like this. Perhaps it was flawed, but no one, as far as I know, went about to correct it or to run a better one. And he says, more than that, I've spent decades immersed in history myself, and I know that the study was, at least more or less, correct. What the study found was that since 3600 B.C., there have been more than 14,000 wars, and over, that over that immense length of time, they could only identify about 200 years in which a war didn't occur. He says, I think that's something to hold in mind as raging overlords move their chess pieces around a bloody globe. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, I can explain why this happens and why it's continued to happen, but he says, I don't think that's especially useful just right now. What I really want to communicate is the fact that we are on the edge of an abyss and that war is not virtual, nor would this one be a clean war in an empty desert. This is the point that really jumped out at me, though. He says, none of the leaders, in quotation marks, involved in this are good guys. None of them. This situation could have been avoided in a dozen ways, but they ran us directly into it anyway. They are incompetent, unwilling, or simply driven to be the big monkey at the top of the hill. They are not to be championed or excused. War is abject failure, and both sides stand condemned. Now, that may be a hard pill for some people to swallow, because 
for some people, their, their patriotic sense of being is wrapped up in, well, our glory is in, you know, going out there and defending freedom by shedding blood. But is that really what the ruling class is, is requiring of our military? Is that really how they're using the military uh, intelligence complex? Because I don't think it is. I mean, I think back to the times when, as a kid, I glorified war, and my friends and I played army, and, you know, we knew every weapon system that we could get our hands on and read about in the library. We just, we were so enthralled with it. It's quite a different thing, though. And I would just ask you to remember, as you see the images of war being paraded in front of you, look what the Russians are doing in Ukraine. Just keep in mind that, yes, it's horrible. It's horrific. But it's no different than what Americans have been doing in Iraq or Afghanistan. It's no different than what the Saudis are doing in Yemen. It's no different than what the U.S. government is doing and aiding others in doing in Syria, in Libya, in Somalia. I know it's hard to believe, and I know it's, it's probably a painful thing to even consider, but there really are no good guys among the leaders in this mess. If you can get your mind around that, chances are pretty good you'll maintain your grip on reality. But in the meantime, how do you keep your uh, sanity? How do, you, how do you stay abreast of what's happening without becoming consumed by it? That's the great balancing act. And, and honestly, um, uh, my friend Kurt Mercadante talks about this. We cannot allow ourselves to, to become you know, the, the human equivalent of a windshield wiper with our attention, ping it back and forth and back and forth. And, oh, wow, did you hear about this and that? Got to stay focused on the prize. And in this case, the prize is maintaining your personal freedom, your personal sovereignty, planting the flag there on the soil of your own individual freedom and saying, this is, this is where I make my stand. Now, first and foremost, we're talking about this is a mental decision. This is, this is a conscious choice that regardless of what's going on around me, I will strive to live as freely as possible. But I got to warn you, if, if that's the choice that you're going to make, and I commend you, first of all, for making that choice, but it's going to come with an attendant price. And the price is you're not going to be fitting in with the mainstream because the mainstream is very disconnected from things pertaining to personal freedom, freedom of conscience, freedom of association, free speech, sound money, private property, the principles of the free market. They've been pushed away from it for what they think is their own good. They think that, well, but there's a, there's a boogeyman out there somewhere. And that boogeyman shifts. You know, if you've been paying attention, you've seen COVID-19 was the scariest, worst thing ever. I think it broke the minds of a large population or a large percentage of the population. And then like a switch, boom, suddenly everybody's attention is somewhere else. Oh, now we've got the blue and yellow flags. Now we're all concerned about this. Are we showing enough support for Ukraine? Are we showing enough anger towards Russia? Have we thrown anybody with a Russian name out of whatever sport or whatever you know endeavor they happen to be involved in? And it seems like a remarkably few number of people can actually recognize how they're being manipulated. So, awareness is important, but not to the point that you find yourself marinating in the bad news. So coming up, we're going to talk about a couple of different things here. Uh, 
we're going to talk about, uh, first of all, how uh, how we're being forced to deny reality. In fact, I've got a, a great uh, piece from Carolyn Brashears I'm going to share with you coming up in the next segment. It's a handy guide to Newspeak 2022. And tied in with that is the question of why can't we tell the truth about things like swimmer Leah Thomas? You know, if you ever doubted that there was a, a very concerted effort to control your thinking, to, to control and manipulate the way that you're allowed to formulate your thoughts, these two pieces ought to do it. We'll also talk a little bit about food shortages. Got a great piece from Thomas L. Knapp. How does your garden or pantry grow? Also, I have a piece from uh, Paul, or not Paul, uh, Pat Buchanan. Now, some people don't like Pat Buchanan, but Pat has been one of the most consistent voices when it comes to questioning and asking the right kinds of questions about U.S. foreign policy for years. One of the things he's asking is victory for Ukraine worth risking nuclear war. And last but not least, we'll also share a few thoughts from John Whitehead's uh, latest column on humilitainment. How we are being distracted from the things that really matter and uh, focused on things like, uh, I don't know, a comedian getting slapped by an actor at a Give Me a Trophy Award ceremony. So, stay with me. We've got some uh, heavy stuff to talk about. We'll see if we can make sense of it all. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Just a quick bit of encouragement here to please click on the link that I provide in my show notes under sponsors to get in touch with the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage located in St. George, Utah. Now, if you are within the sound of my voice within Utah or Idaho, Heather and her team at Patriot Home Mortgage can help you secure the home loan that you are looking for. And there's an email link right there in those show notes that'll put you in touch with her. Click on it, get in touch with her, and rest easy that you can get that loan quickly and with as little stress as possible. She really is remarkable, and I know this because I've I've been through the pre-qualification process with her. And uh, very, very helpful, and definitely the person I would want on your side as well. So let's talk about manipulation of language. I've got a great article here from Carolyn Brashears. This is uh, Reader's Guide to Newspeak 2022. In case you hadn't noticed, our language is kind of changing right under our feet and right around us. And she asks, are you behind on Newspeak? Are you still using old speak terms like freedom? Well, if so, it's time to update your vocabulary, abandoning useless words that clutter your brain. Master Newspeak, you'll never have to think again. But wait, you say, I enjoy thinking. Well, of course you do. And so did Winston Smith in 1984, right up until his holiday in the Ministry of Love. While Orwell ex- depicts the experience as torture, it was really the Ingsoc version of retraining, which I'm happy to provide here, minus the starvation. As Winston's guide, O'Brien explains, the old civilizations claimed they were founded on love and justice. Ours is founded upon hatred. In our world, there will be no emotions except fear, rage, triumph, and self-abasement. To magnify those emotions, new speak bypasses reason. So consider these examples from the dictionary's latest edition. Capitalism. 
This word is the magic eraser of arguments. It wipes away any opposing argument by evoking images of bankers wearing top hats and monocles. All the better to see their filthy lucre. If your teacher's union just wants a raise, then just yell, Our fight is against capitalism. No one will realize that you're the one after money. Or the word justice. This word is the butter of arguments. It makes any demand palatable because it's accompanied by something everyone knows is pleasing. When an educator uses the term grading justice, we know it's fabulous. Why assess learning with uniform standards when you can achieve political goals using children? Here's another word, whiteness. This word is the napalm of arguments. While stereotyping is generally considered bad, especially in relation to race, in this context it's good because it's done by a museum partially funded by the government. Whiteness is the perfect weapon because no one needs facts to fuel to fuel a discussion. Just drop it and watch your opponent's arguments go up in smoke. Yet achieving the nirvana of newspeak, the elimination of thought, requires more than mastering terms like capitalism or justice. It entails the acceptance of O'Brien's principle that reality exists in the human mind and nowhere else. Not in the individual mind, only in the mind of the party, which is collective and immortal. Carolyn Brashear says subsuming one's identity into that of the party, one can at last channel ideas without thought. Duck speak. In 1984, Winston sees this phenomenon in a co-worker at lunch. The stuff that was coming out of him consisted of words, but it was not speech in the true sense. It was noise uttered in unconsciousness, like the quacking of a duck. While rare, duck speak is sometimes achieved, as in last summer's speech by then PTA by a then PTA official who spoke in opposition to parents gathering for a stop CRT rally. Quote, so let's meet and remain steadfast in speaking truth, tearing down double standards and refuting double talk. Let's not allow any double downing, double downing on lies. Let's prepare our children for the world they deserve. Let's deny this off-key band of people that are anti-education, anti-teacher, anti-equity, anti-history, anti-racial reckoning, anti-opportunities, anti-help people, anti-diversity, anti-platform, anti-science, anti-change agent, anti-social justice, anti-health care, anti-worker, anti-LGBTQ+, anti-children, anti-health care, anti-worker, anti-environment, anti-admissions policy change, anti-inclusion, Anti live and let live people live and let live people let them die to which everybody cheered don't let these uncomfortable people deter us from our bold march forward end quote now despite the speaker's rejection of double talk in newspeak we would call this speech double plus good the speaker gushes talking points even mindlessly repeating phrases anti health care anti worker Furthermore, the speaker abandons all pretense of thought in labeling the protesting parents anti-children. But her real point, of course, is let them die. Why should these uncomfortable people disturb the party's sense of what's best for education? Carolyn Brashear says, in 1984, the ruling party is not about life, but power. As O'Brien tells Winston, power is collective. The individual has power insofar as he ceases to be an individual. Humans die, but if an individual can merge himself in the party so that he is the party, then he is all-powerful and immortal. To master the new speak of 2022, you must subsume yourself within the collective. You must reject old think and the kind of trash that advocates individual rights. Above all, you must accept the language that diminishes your ability to think for yourself.
Only then, my friends, will you and your society become as good thinkful as that in 1984. Now, she's writing this tongue-in-cheek, but she has a good point to make here. This is one of the reasons why I love words and I, I love language. And I love the ability to share ideas. Because that's where the power is. Speaking of ideas, why can't we tell the truth about swimmer Leah Thomas? Joanna Williams, writing for SpikedOnline.com, says, Leah Thomas, the swimmer who won a U.S. Women's National College Championship event last week, is a man. It is because he is a man with a body that's taller, broader, and stronger than his female competitors that he won the NCAA competition. When swimming alongside other men, which Thomas used to do, he ranked an unremarkable 554th in the college league tables. Without knowing that Thomas is a man, it's hard to understand why his victory has been so controversial and sparked headlines all around the world. It's impossible to comprehend the anger of champion swimmer Rika Giorgi, denied a place in the freestyle final thanks to Thomas's inclusion. A man prevented women competitors, including an Olympic medalist, from receiving the titles they had earned. His presence made the competition fundamentally unjust. Yet the language used to describe Thomas's victory makes it difficult to grasp the reality of what happened at the Macaulay Aquatic Center in Atlanta, Georgia. Almost everywhere in every print and online publication, Thomas is referred to as she. We are told that she stood on the podium to receive her medal. The U.S. National Women's Law Center tweeted in support of Thomas and branded critics misogynists. To The Guardian, Thomas is a transgender woman, while the BBC suggests Thomas is the first known transgender athlete to win the NCAA swimming title, the implication being that there may have been plenty of other transgender swimming champions, but we've just never heard of them. Now, this use of language is not just confusing, it's deliberately misleading. Joanna Miller says she and her are pronouns that are supposed to denote women. Statements like, she swam for the Pennsylvanian men team, men's team, which appears in the BBC's report, are illogical. Yet even most of those criticizing Thomas or the NCAA for allowing him to compete use the pronouns she and her. At best, clumsy labels refer to Thomas as male-bodied and criticize the fact that she was allowed to compete along female-bodied people or biological women. But this... Uh, this suggests clarification is necessary and that the labels man and woman are no longer good enough descriptors on their own. Even the phrase transgender woman is deceptive. When used in conjunction with she and pitched against cis women, it suggests that there are two different but equivalent categories of women, womanhood, trans women and biological women. Now, playing fast and loose with language in this way, making it bend to match political uh, objectives and social niceties, ends up distorting our perception of reality. If she takes first place in a women's event, nothing remarkable has occurred. Our capacity to push back and challenge the reality before our eyes, a man beating women, is then seriously thwarted. We're going to come back to this commentary by Joanna Miller in just a few moments. Hang on to your hats. We're questioning the narrative here. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. 
Just a quick shout-out here for HSLAmmo.com. I really love the fact that uh, HSL Ammo is high-quality, new and remanufactured ammunition. Spencer Worthington is the founder of HSL Ammo. He's one of the guys who has, you know, against against almost insurmountable odds, kept his company growing and, and continuing to go on in times when lesser companies would have folded. And for my listeners in southern Utah, he's right there in your community. So if you have a chance to support someone who is doing great things right there where you live, please let HSL Ammo be one of those businesses to which you lend your support. You'll find a link in my show notes under sponsors that'll take you right to his website. So I'm sharing this article from Joanna Miller. This is from spikedonline.com. She's writing from the UK about why can't we tell the truth about Leah Thomas? And I know it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing for some people to understand. Well, Brian, why are we attacking this person who obviously, you know, is a victim and has issues and, uh, you know, needs our compassion? And I don't, I don't disagree that uh, Leah Thomas or whatever her name was before she transitioned to, you know, calling herself a woman, um, needs compassion. Okay, I think this is a child of God, and I think this is someone who does not deserve to be maligned. But at the same time, I think we are well within our rights to stick with reality and to to maintain our own uh, sanctity of our minds and our consciences as opposed to let's all participate and, and say the lie that we know is a lie, but it's, you know, in the interest of politeness that we all say what we know is not really true. You know, Joanna Miller says, you know, our, our ability to push back and challenge the reality before our eyes, which in this case was a man beating women in a swimming competition, is seriously thwarted. And this is the reason that transgender activists are so obsessed with pronouns. It's not just that transgender individuals want the recognition or positive affirmation that comes with being referred to as she or her or he or him. Far more importantly, she says, campaigners recognize the role pronouns play in our language and broader culture. These tiny words convey a host of social expectations wrapped up in statements of biological fact. The practice of declaring pronouns is a way of getting everyone to acquiesce to the idea that biology is irrelevant. And that it's our identity, or in other words, what goes on in our heads, that's all important. Announcing pronouns warns us to assume nothing from the reality staring us in the face, and instead to pay utmost respect to a person's stated notion of who they are. No wonder activists are determined to normalize pronoun badges and email signatures. By the way, if you're in a situation like in work or something where it says, now make sure you include your pronouns in your you know bio here, I suggest use the pronouns Awake and concerned. Just a suggestion. Transgender activists have been successful in getting even many defenders of women's sex-based rights to play along with the idea that we should call people by their preferred pronouns. Doing otherwise seems deliberately rude and unkind. We all want to be thought of as nice and polite. No one wants to be labeled transphobic. Ironically, though, Joanna Miller points out it is women, those who have been who have the most to lose from giving up single sex spaces and sex based rights, who are more likely to have been socialized into the importance of being nice and who tend to pay a higher price for not conforming. She says by acquiescing linguistically, it makes it more difficult for women to defend their rights. Once it is sown into our language that identity is more important than biology, it's hard to insist upon single sex spaces. When we use she and her to refer to men, we are saying something that's linguistically nonsensical 
and scientifically untrue. We're lying to ourselves and others. Now, this act of deception may seem kind, but it makes it far more difficult to, tra- to challenge transgender ideology in practice. And so the erosion of women's single-sex spaces and of women's sports and the treatment of children who are questioning their gender identity continues. Joanna Williams says, It is wrong to describe Leah Thomas as she and her. It makes it harder to name the injustice we see when he takes the top spot on the podium. It makes it harder to argue against male inclusion in female sports. Leah Thomas is a man. Pretending otherwise, even just if it's out of courtesy, makes it harder to say that this man should not be competing alongside women. I've got a link to the article from Joanna Miller in the show notes. I mean, this seems like pretty sound reasoning to me. It doesn't seem based in anger or or hatred, you know, towards another person. I'm just grateful for those who have the courage to say, hey, look, the emperor's running around naked. Because it seems like a lot of adults are just willing to play along for the sake of, I don't want to seem out of step with everyone. All right, shifting gears. Now that political leaders are openly talking about global food shortages... I'm seeing a lot of people around me becoming more aware of their food supplies. Thomas L. Knapp has an article asking, How does your garden or pantry grow? I kind of like some of the points he makes here. President Joe Biden and other leaders of the world's major industrialized democracies pledged action on Thursday, March 24th, to address food shortages caused by Russia's war on Ukraine. Political reports. Biden says food shortages are going to be real although he seems to see them as an opportunity to increase U.S. grain production and food exports rather than a real threat to Americans' own well-being. After a year of continuing his predecessor's trade war policies, Biden seems to be getting some free trade religion, which is nice, but he may be underestimating the scope of the problem. Thomas Knapp says the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the U.S.-EU-NATO sanctions response doesn't just upend the global supply of grain crops. Russia and Ukraine are both top exporters of wheat and other foods. As Reuters reports, it also affects the global supply of the fertilizers that power farming elsewhere. Russia is the world's top fertilizer exporter, followed by China, a top trade war target of the last few years. So what does this mean for Americans? Well, probably not starvation in the streets, but... Food prices are going to keep soaring, probably even more so than they have the last couple of years. More of our incomes will go to putting food on the table and less to other things. We're getting, in a word, poorer. So if you had the foresight to go full prepper years ago, a basement full of freeze-dried meals, a large garden, an annual canning operation, etc., good on you. Unless things escalate, we're probably not looking at the apocalypse, but you've been vindicated nonetheless. Now, he says, as for the rest of us, at least a little prepping is definitely in order. It's not too late to start stocking up on canned food before the next big price increase. And if you have a yard or access to a community gardening space, to put some food in the ground for harvest later this year. Thomas Knapp says, personally, I have had gardening ambitions for years. I spent part of my childhood on a farm and on a subsistence farm, rather, and enjoyed it. But until last week... I limited myself to a little raised bed affair with some salad and stir-fry items. This week, he says, I invested in a tiller and an assortment of heirloom seeds with the expectation of getting to work on a much larger garden next week. 
Now, he says, I'm fortunate to live on a full acre in northern Florida where I can reasonably expect to get two growing seasons in this year. If worse comes to worst, depending on or doubling up on the cans in your pantry and growing a little romaine for your Caesar salads won't save your life. But if not, they'll save you some much needed money in the harder days to come. Now, hopefully that doesn't, you know, inspire fear in you. But I think this is very, very sound advice. And so I'm going to ask you, just consider, what are you doing to either produce more of your food or to promote greater self-sufficiency in your food? I know we all take it for granted that, hey, you know, Costco's just down the road. I'm sure I can just go down there and get whatever I want. But I would ask you to just remember, don't wallow in it, but remember, what was it like just as the uh, lockdowns were being announced a couple of years ago? Do you remember seeing people dragging a couple of grocery carts along with them, eyes wide like deer in the headlights, as they're just grabbing, what are we going to need? What are we going to need? Certain things disappeared from the store shelves. I mean, we joke about the great toilet paper shortage of 2020, but that was a real challenge for some people. What are the items that you are most likely going to need? And I think now would be the time to just start stocking up on those items. Don't go panic buy. But just consistently, each time you find yourself at the store, grab a few extra cans of vegetables. If you have small children still in diapers, grab an extra set of diapers or an extra bag, you know, of, of uh, or an extra package of baby wipes, whatever it may be. The key is to be ahead of the curve so that when panic hits, and, and it's going to hit at some point, either from rising food prices or from actual, you know, empty store shelves and the panic that people feel when they see that. Be far enough ahead of the curve to know that, hey, in, in a worst case scenario, I've got enough to take care of me and my family, maybe help some neighbors along the way. This is what will take the fear out of these kinds of challenges. And I really do believe these kinds of challenges are quickly approaching. I don't say that because we all need to be running around screaming with our hands in the air like the sky is falling. I think this is the reality of what's coming at us very, very quickly. We have to be uh, careful not to be so distracted that we don't notice it. But the time to take action is sooner than later. While there's still plenty of stuff on the store shelves, even if it's kind of getting expensive... This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Yes, it is, and I thank you for being part of my growing audience of wrong thinkers. Please consider subscribing to my show notes. It's very simple. Go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on the show notes down at the bottom of the page. You'll see a big subscribe button. Give me your email address, and I'll send you a copy every day that I do the show. It's that simple. By the way, I want to thank Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah, for being one of my sponsors. Um, if you are into sewing, you know that this is, this is a very serious hobby. In fact, for some people, it's not just a hobby. It's a way of life. And when you consider some of the different machines and technology that are available, it has never been easier to really create high-quality clothing, blankets, other other articles. I mean, you can when you can fix or fabricate your own clothing, you've got a degree of self-sufficiency that's really top-notch. And some of these machines are simply amazing. The long-arm quilting machines. 
just absolutely blow my mind. Now, here's the cool thing. Sewing and Quilting Center not only sells these machines and all the supplies that go along with them, the fabric, the threads, everything else, but they service these machines as well. They they have many certified technicians who will take care of you and make sure that your machine is running. And here's the best part. They will train you how to use your machine. They They offer classes that can teach you, even if it's been years since you bought it. Go learn how to put that machine to the best possible work. You want to do embroidery, you want to do sewing, long arm quilting. They've got it all covered right there in one place. These are good people to know. Sewingandquiltingcenter.com Right, two quick things here. I want to share uh, an article here from Pat Buchanan. Is victory for Ukraine worth risking nuclear war? And I get it's it's a very politically incorrect question, the official narrative right now on Ukraine. But I'm grateful for Pat Buchanan and his ability to ask some serious questions and provide some needed historical perspective. He says, during the 70 years that the Soviet Union existed, Ukraine was an integral part of the nation. Yet this geographic and political reality posed no threat to the United States. A Russia and a Ukraine, both inside the USSR, was an accepted reality that was seen as no threat for the seven decades that they were united. Yet today... Because of a month-old war between Russia and Ukraine over who will control Crimea, the Donbass, and the Black and Azov Sea coasts of Ukraine, America seems closer to a nuclear war than at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. Why? Time to step back and reflect on what's at stake. Now he says, exactly what threat does Russia's invasion of Ukraine present to us that's so grave we would consider military action that could lead to World War III and Russia's use of battlefield nuclear weapons against us. Russian President Vladimir Putin has repeatedly hinted at the use of such weapons should NATO intervene in the Ukraine war and Russia face defeat or in the event of an existential threat to the Russian nation. We hear from our moral elites that morality commands us to intervene to save the Ukrainian people from the ravages of a war that has already taken thousands of Ukrainian lives. But what would be the justification for U.S. military intervention in Ukraine? Absent a congressional authorization or declaration of war. Well, he says, consider the year the liberal hour arrived in America with the New Deal, 1933. A newly inaugurated Franklin D. Roosevelt formally recognized Joseph Stalin's murderous regime as the legitimate government of a Russia-led USSR. FDR met personally with Soviet Foreign Minister Maxim Litvinov, even as the Holodomor, the forced starvation of Ukrainian peasants and small farmers, the Kulaks and their families, was far advanced. Walter Duranty, the New York Times reporter in Moscow, won a Pulitzer for covering up that crime of the century with its estimated four million dead. Now the question remains... When did the relationship between Russia and Ukraine become a matter of such vital interest to the U.S. that we would risk war, possible nuclear war with Russia, over it? How did we get here? Well, Pat Buchanan answers, We got here by exploiting our Cold War victory as an opportunity to move NATO, our Cold War alliance, into a dozen countries in Central and Eastern Europe up to the borders of Russia. Then we started to bring Ukraine into NATO, the constituent republic of the old Soviet Union with the longest and deepest history with Mother Russia. Thus, while Putin started this war, the U.S. set the table for it. 
We pushed our military alliance, NATO, set up in 1949 to contain, and if necessary, fight Russia 1,000 miles to the east, right into Russia's face. In the 1930s, when Britain's Lady Astor was asked if she knew where Hitler was born, she answered, Versailles. At the Paris Peace Conference of 1919, which produced the Versailles Treaty, millions of Germanic peoples in the lands they had inhabited were severed from German rule and distributed to a half dozen nations across Europe. When we get back on our feet, we will take back all that we have lost, said General Hans von Secht of the German General Staff. Now we hear warnings that if Russia uses chemical weapons in Ukraine, NATO will react militarily. But if no NATO ally is attacked, why would NATO respond to a Russian attack on Ukraine? Though outlawed today, chemical weapons were used by all the major participants in World War I, including the Americans. As for atomic weapons, only Americans have used them. And while we did not introduce the bombing of cities, the British and the Germans did that, we did perfect the carpet bombing of cities like Cologne, Hamburg, Berlin, Dresden, and Tokyo. The Ukrainian war, now a month old, has demonstrated the utility of nuclear weapons. Putin's credible threat to use them has caused the U.S. and NATO to flatly refuse Kiev's request to put a no-fly zone over over Ukraine. And as Russia's threat to use nuclear weapons has deterred NATO from intervening on Ukraine's side in this war, war rather, other nations will not miss the message. Possession of nukes can deter even the greatest nuclear powers. Pat Buchanan says the longer this war goes on, the greater the suffering and losses on all sides. Thousands of Ukrainian soldiers and civilians are already dead, with 10 million uprooted from their homes, a third of that number having fled into neighboring states of Eastern Europe. The longer the war goes on, the greater the likelihood Putin resorts to indiscriminate bombing and shelling to kill off the resistance. And the greater the possibility that the war expands into NATO Europe. Meanwhile, in the secure American homeland, 5,000 miles from Kiev, there is no shortage of foreign policy scholars beating the drums for a victory over Putin's Russia and willing to fight to achieve that victory right down to the last Ukrainian. You don't have to agree with him. But I do believe Pat Buchanan has some pretty solid points worth consideration. All right, one final note here. I'm mildly ashamed that I gave any attention to the drama at uh, the Oscars the other night. But especially after I read John Whitehead's article from the the, uh, Rutherford Institute about humilitainment, how to control the citizenry through reality TV distractions. He starts with a quote from Professor Neil Postman. Big Brother does not watch us by his choice. We watch him by ours. When a population becomes distracted by trivia, when cultural life is redefined as a perpetual round of entertainments, when serious public conversation becomes a form of baby talk, when, in short, a people become an audience and their public business a vaudeville act, then a nation finds itself at risk. Culture death is a clear possibility. John Whitehead says, look, once again, the programming has changed. Like clockwork, the wall-to-wall news coverage of the latest crisis has shifted gears. We've gone from COVID-19 lockdowns to Trump-Biden election drama to the Russia-Ukraine crisis to the Katanji-Brown-Jackson confirmation hearings to Will Smith's on-camera assault of comedian Chris Rock at the Academy Awards ceremony. He says the distractions, distortions, and political theater just keep coming. And the ongoing reality show that is life in the American police state feeds the citizenry's voracious appetite for titillating soap opera drama. 
much like the fabricated universe in Peter Weir's 1998 film The Truman Show, in which a man's life is the basis for an elaborately staged television show aimed at selling products and procuring ratings. The political scene in the U.S. has devolved over the years into a carefully calibrated exercise in how to manipulate, polarize, propagandize, and control a population. This is the magic of the reality TV programming that passes for politics today. As long as we're distracted, entertained, occasionally outraged, always polarized, but largely uninvolved and content to remain in the viewer's seat, we'll never manage to present a unified front against tyranny or government corruption and ineptitude in any form. In fact, the more that's beamed at us, the more inclined we are to settle back in our comfy recliners and become passive viewers rather than active participants as unsettling or frightening events unfold. We don't even have to change the channel when the subject matter becomes too monotonous. That's taken care of, of uh, that's taken care of for us by the programmers or the corporate media. I guess the takeaway from this is as long as we're viewers, we'll never be doers. There's a lot more to this article. I'm going to leave it to you to check it out for yourself. Again, this is from John Whitehead from the Rutherford Institute. This is a guy who's been sounding the alarm for some time. And it pains me to point it, not that I disagree with him, but he's been vindicated and continues to be vindicated. His warnings have been right on target. Okay, stout hearts, stiff upper lip, pip, pip, and all that. Let's remember who we are and what we stand for. This is The Brian Hyde Show.